This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? HelloFresh gets you fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes, and they show up at your door. You can skip all the grocery store shopping. I mean, this week, already putting off grocery store shopping to, to my own detriment, right? Nothing in the fridge. And it's because I don't want the hassle. And this helps you skip it, right? All those trips to the grocery store, get them out of here. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in like 30 minutes. 30 minutes or less, right? It's like the new Domino's. Domino's did not pay for this. I should not say their name. Uh, With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everybody. Like, how about firecracker meatballs? My two favorite words put together in one recipe. Uh, And all the recipes are designed, tested by professional chefs, nutritional experts. Like, everybody gets together in a room. They're like, yes, this one, not that one. Uh, Go to the link in our show notes. Get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. It's the number one meal kit. HelloFresh. Now... Rock and roll bedtime stories. Come in. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We exist to lay waste to the rumor and innuendo you've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. Hola, my name is Brian. Hey guys, it's Murdoch. Welcome to the show again. And we've spent plenty of time on this show already talking about copyright law, right? This is a thing that comes up a lot when you're talking about rock and roll controversy. And we have discovered that sometimes it's very much something that should be addressed. Like, if you go all the way back to the first episode of the show, we discussed the Ghostbusters theme. Spoiler alert, that song created purposely to sound like Huey Lewis. And that's been pretty well documented. And we we had an episode, I think it was episode three, we talked talked about uh little red corvette and uh stand back with stevie nicks yeah and then and then most recently we've talked about the most you know in in terms of like the mount rushmore with elvis and jerry lee lewis and johnny cash we talked about vanilla ice uh, <laughs> and when he was having a roni having some problems we're having some problems with some people, some legal problems. Oh, man. You can listen to that episode. Uh, it uh, just went up. And thanks, by the way, for everybody listening. Yeah, and thank you for the great listener mail about that episode, too, which we, we'll get to on a bonus episode soon. But, okay, so sometimes, though, you can find yourself on the opposite end of this spectrum, and you can end up in the territory of what like I would almost refer to as, as patent trolling. Now, it, you know what patent trolling is, right? I do, yeah. If someone's new to the term, I'll define it, and, and you can help me. I, I went to look for a succinct definition, and I really like what the Electronic Frontier Foundation's explanation is here. Quote, a patent troll uses patents as legal weapons. I just think that's very succinct. Uh, instead of actually creating... Legal weapons, right? It's sort of okay. like how you use your body at night. Uh, instead of actually creating any new products or coming up with any new ideas, trolls are in the business of litigation or even just threatening litigation. They often buy a patents cheaply from companies down on their luck who are looking to monetize the resources they have left. And a lot of times, the patent office has had this habit of issuing patents for ideas that are not new or revolutionary and are a little broad. Uh, so they might cover everyday common sense types of things, right? Especially around computers. So, so you're saying it's a hustle. It's a, like hustle. a hustle. There's a great episode yeah. of Silicon Valley, if you've not seen it, about patent trolls. There's also, I, I mean, I sort of came in contact with it because of podcasting, because there was a guy trying to shake down major podcasters for a while because he said he had the patent for recorded audio on the internet or something crazy like that. So it was very, very broad. Um, 
Now, a lot of times what happens, though, and this plays out in, in that Silicon Valley episode, as I remember it, is that a lot of times people will just pay whatever fee these people want out of them because it's way easier and cheaper than trying to litigate it in court, even though they really don't have the, you know, it's arguable that they really have the rights to whatever they're saying they have the rights to, but it's like, dude, whatever I can do to make this go away, because otherwise this guy's going to drain me of a lot of money in court. So in short, as you said, it's a hustle or uh, it's pretty predatory and it's perverse in some ways because it, it's like almost like gaslighting, right? Like it sort of turns the tables wow. with yeah. someone saying that they were a victim while really victimizing other people. And, and it really like lives in the letter of the law, which is not my favorite place to live as opposed to like the spirit of the law, if that makes sense. So what we're going to talk about, we can't actually classify as patent trolling by the above definition. It's much more clear cut all the way around, but I will say it's much closer to this than on that other end of the spectrum like we talked about with the Ghostbuster song. And it contains a few elements that make it a little predatory. And I think it's important to establish that like most things in this world, good things like copyrights can be turned into bad things when put in the wrong hands. And then there are good people, but out there, there are also bad people. (laughs) And we must protect the children from the bad people as long as possible uh, till they find out that the world is just filled with just fucking jerks. Yeah. This, anyway, this episode is for the whole family. This is a this is a, a teaching moment. Uh, one more technical note. This might sound sort of obvious, but I don't think it actually is. It should be understood that you can sell a copyright. Like, I don't really think about this. Right. But I could make something. I could get a copyrighted and then I can sell the rights to it. Or if something happened to me. The rights may be sold off, just like my house or my car. Now, it's important to be aware of that heading into this, so I just want to make note of that. So, enough legal (laughs) mumber-jumber. Enough of the legalese. I mean, listen, I, I've been to the dentist at night, too. It's it's kind of cool when you got one of those guys. <laughs> Keep talking, Brian. You ready to go all the way across the world? You ready I'm to ready go? for it, Mumbles. Take us there, Mumbles. Uh, are you ready to go? <laughs> All the way to the world down under. She said, Do you come from a home down under? Huh. Huh. How do you feel about men at work? Give give me all your thoughts on Colin Hanging Company. I have I have such a really I have such a really meaningful relationship with that band because of MTV. And you saw them perform and just watching them perform they were odd they weren't like other other acts they they just stood out colin hay looked totally weird or whatever those songs were smash hits here in the u.s i mean i mean i remember when they were top five hits well we're gonna talk about it right so it takes a little while and they have this career in australia and then they have this career here but it's funny because I sort of like I always knew those songs, but the the big songs, Down Under and probably Who Can It Be Now, which I also love and I hadn't heard in forever. And I wrote this, I, I wrote the notes for What's this my episode. Favorite? It's oh. it's not my favorite. I'll tell you what my favorite is, but I do like it. And uh, I used to love to play it on the radio. And I was hadn't heard it in years. And I wrote up most of these notes. I did the research, and then. Like yesterday, I was in a gas station and I walk in the gas station and I just hear like, you know, uh, right under the the freezer noise, you hear, who can it be now? You know, that's really the best place to hear men at work is the gas station. Uh, So, you know, because (laughs) 
it's a place for men at work. Um, so anyway, I, I bring this up to say that part of the re, part of like I got deeper into Colin Hayes' discography and men at work in general due to something that I'm pretty sure you missed entirely, which is the sitcom Scrubs. No, I did. I did watch Scrubs. I didn't watch it like. You know how people that really like Friends like Friends and yeah, they've yeah, seen yeah. all the Friends. Yeah, sure. I, I watched every Seinfeld episode, um, but I, I did enjoy Scrubs, but I didn't just make it. I didn't have appointment listening, you know, appointment watching. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Right. Early in the series, I think it was in the first season, maybe it was in the second, there was an ongoing gag for a few episodes where Colin Hay was like a corpse that would show up and pop out of things and play songs. Um, I may be slightly misremembering the gag, but he is, he is featured because, you know, and you remember that, like, we kind of forget about this, but if we want to just really time capsule, like, 2003 to six or whatever that period was, that period where we were letting Zach Braff soundtrack our lives, like, do you remember this? Like, Zach Braff was the guy who was, like, the trendy indie rock guy. Oh, and, and Garden State has a particular... Vibe? soft spot in, yeah. in in my life just because of when I watched it when when I met my wife. So there was Garden State and that that soundtrack of course was you know a big thing, right? Everybody had that soundtrack and there was the whole thing with the shins and the shins were in the movie and, and then Zach Braff became this curator and he did it through scrubs and he did it through his movies. There was another movie that I had the soundtrack for forever that was not a good movie. I think it was called The Last Kiss or something, but it also had a pretty good soundtrack. And he was breaking guys. There were guys that were basically getting careers. And he sort of reinvigorated Colin Hay to a certain degree. That's the reason I bring him up here, because he was using Colin Hay's music in a lot of stuff. And there was a, at some point I came across a, an acoustic record that was basically like Colin Hay and an acoustic guitar doing all the Men at Work songs. The Getting to the, this is not in my notes, this is me rambling, about my favorite Men at Work song, which is Overkill. Do you know that song? Oh, yeah. That song, oh, yeah. That song's Absolutely. great. That song's great. Anyway, we should get back on, on track, which is 1978, Ron Strykert and Colin Hay start playing music around Melbourne as an acoustic duo. And fun note, also not in my notes, but I, did, I do understand from reading things, Colin Hay is actually not Australian. This is the same deal. I, I don't think it happened the same way as it did with the ACDC, as we talked about. The uh, Young Brothers actually came over because they saw a commercial on TV that said... <laughs> Hey, you should come to Australia. Maybe this is how it happened for Colin Hay, too, because Colin Hay is Scottish, and he comes over to Australia. Um, quickly, they decide to flesh out a full band, and they add several guys, and one of them is going to become important to, to our story. He's this multi-instrumentalist named Greg Ham, and he re- uh, refuses to be in the band at first because he's finishing up a music degree, and I don't know if he just thought he was too serious to be in a pop band, but by 79... He's in, and the guys need a name to put on a blackboard outside of a hotel where they got, they've gotten a gig. So they've got a gig, they don't have a name for the band, and they quickly decide, uh, we'll call ourselves Men at Work. And they're basically like a pub band, right? So they self-finance a single. The A-side is a song called Key Punch Operator. We've been talking a lot about B-sides of singles recently and, and what happens when people flip on the B-side. Uh, but the B-side is a song called Down Under. And they start to get a lot of cred in their in their town in Melbourne. They're unsigned, true definition of an indie band, but they start to develop this reputation and they become pretty highly paid for being unsigned. Um, early in 81, Men at Work signed with CBS Records. And the first single in Australia is actually Who Can It Be Now? Uh, 
it goes to number two in Australia and it stays on the chart for six months. The next single, they rework that song that started their career on the B side of the independent single they released, Down Under. And it goes number one for six weeks. Now, this is all just in Australia, right? So you said MTV is, is like sort of why you have a relationship with them. We're getting there. Yeah, and when, when you own Australia, man, you own Australia. There There was a... Kiss sold so many records in Australia. It was obscene. And another band that did, that's an interesting example, is Kings of Leon. Oh. And so when you when you look at the sales figures of the amount of records they've sold in Australia versus the total population in Australia, it becomes a significant percentage of the population has that record. Like, yeah. It, it's it's interesting how that I don't know if radio still supports it so much that the that the bands that really make it like really make it you know I mean now people don't buy music but you know they probably um, you know there's the people that still buy music are probably still the same way so well and you know there are a couple things working in Australia's favor one of them is uh, that that radio station. Um, that does the and and they've really taken on a life across the world through a feature that they do called like a version. If you've ever oh. seen like a version, that actually oh. comes out of Triple J, and that's an Australian entity. Triple J oh, is I an thought, Australian entity. I, I thought that was from the UK. Man, I watched that. The dude, the dude that does. Uh, um, Rally around the family with a pocket full of yeah, shells. It does the the yeah. rage against the machine cover is crazy. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many, man. There's so many, and a lot of those are Australian artists. So if you if you dive into that now, just to make it clear, like a version is a weekly segment on an Australian youth radio station called Triple J, and it's Australian artists and some international artists, but they get to play two songs live in the studio, and one of them is their song, and then one of them is a cover. So it gets a little confused because there's Stereo Gum was doing something sort of similar for a while. Um, but Like a Virgin has been around forever, and you can go find a- amazing stuff because you're going to, f- you, you can get sucked in by the song you know, right? Like, hey, I'm going to go watch Coldplay the Scientist. I know that song, but it's by a guy named Sly Withers. And then you find out who Sly Withers is, and now you're a Sly Withers fan, right? And I will say, we've talked about this on the show before because I'm a huge Middle Kids fan, uh, and Middle Kids are from Australia. Is there is so much good music in Australia right now? I mean, I've thought this for a while, and you can, you know, oh. because of the internet, it's democratized everything. Get on Spotify, you get down a hole, you pick one artist, you start getting all the other Australian artists. And Australian hip hop, which I bring up a lot, doesn't sound like American hip hop, and it doesn't really sound like British hip hop. It's still very like full band pop music based, and uh, I really like a lot of Australian hip hop. Wow, you like Australian hip hop, and and of all the things, like we always have things that are radically weird in common. I like the Australian um, rock revival, where the bands clearly sound like they're cut from the cloth of of Malcolm and Angus Young, and they sound yeah. like were the ACDC. vines from Australia. Um, they were, but th- screw those guys. There's um, <laughs> like Amel and the Sniffers is one of oh, them. Oh, right, right, right. Um, and then that band that uh, we talked about the other day where it's, uh, I'm going Soho, whatever that band is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, 
uh, I can't remember their name or whatever, but, um, but then, you know, and because of those bands, I'll look and I'll see just like who their support acts or who they're playing with. And I'm like, there's all these bands in Australia that sound like ACDC. This is amazing, you know, because it's, it's a universal human language like back in black or highway to hell is to anyone recognizes it. Just like at this point, I guess, uh, you know, gin and juice. Well, and it's funny, you're pointing out this idea that things sound like Australia, right? And what you're saying kind of is like, right. th- when things sound like ACDC, they sort of sound like Australia because ACDC is so notorious out of Australia. But yeah, I, let, let me make note of some of the critical response from this time, because it will become a key part of this story later, and it plays into what you're saying. There was a Cabrera Times writer. His name was Gary Raphael. I got really excited when I first saw his name because I thought it said Jerry Rafferty. Um, and I thought we were going to get to talk about him. I we, we need to talk about Jerry Rafferty on the show at some point. But anyway, this guy goes on the record as saying, quote, and this is in a review about the music of Men at Work. There is a delicacy about this music, right? So ACDC, I, I would call it a lot of things. I wouldn't call it delicate. Right, but men at work, there's a delicacy, and that's not a thing you say about too many rock groups. The flute and reeds of Greg Ham go much further than that, and Greg Ham and his flute are going to become a huge part of this story, dude. And and here my my whole life, I've always been like Jethro Tull can kiss my ass. Marshall Tucker Band <laughs> is the only band rock band that should have a flute. Greg right? Ham, baby, <laughs> Greg Ham's the music school guy. He almost didn't join because he was so proud of his flute playing. But now he's showing up to band practice with all kinds of stuff, including that flute. And well, you know, you just wow. said it. Not a ton of rock singles have a lead flute. Remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great, it's a great hook, too. So these guys are killing it in Australia and New Zealand. But lots of music's going to kill over there, just like we've talked about. And it won't translate across the ocean. So at first, it kind of looks like that's what's going to happen in Men at Work. Despite its strong Australian and New Zealand showing, and they have an American producer, their, their album, Business as Usual, was actually rejected not once, but two times by Columbia's U.S. parent company. Oh, how weird. But yeah. they, they, they have these advocates on their side and in their camp. And, and eventually, including that producer, and eventually the album is released in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom in April of 82. And this is yeah. six months after it shows up in Australia. Right. And Brian, here, I want you to think about how how old your friend Murdoch is. <laughs> because I owned that piece of wax. Oh. Oh, nice. Uh, so how does it do in North America? Well, this is interesting. I just, again, this is some nerd stuff. If you've never listened to the show and you just happen upon this, this is what happens. We start to talk about the nerd aspects of these things. And one of them is like, how does how does a song break across oceans like this? So it actually permeates Canada first. Who Can It Be Now hits the top 10 on a radio station in Winnipeg in May of 82. And because of that, Minute work get the opening slot on a Fleetwood Mac tour. Oh, oh, oh! And it's it's wait, it's what year? Eighty two. This is eighty two. So, what uh, era of Fleetwood Mac is that? It's it's definitely not the best, and, <laughs> and, but you know, it's not the worst. <laughs> 
Uh, Fleetwood Mac '82 I, is Mirage. Okay, so Love yeah, and Store I mean, can't I go like, back. I like I like Mirage, but it's not my favorite. But so yeah, this is the this is the Mirage tour, I believe, it, in the fall of '82. And here's where you'd have to determine from Stevie on whether at that time Stevie was doing tons of cocaine or yeah. doing tons of clonopin. Yeah. So I mean, like when I when I pieced that together when she explained, you know. Or, or if she was doing them both at the same time, I guess. I don't know. That the 80s are... It's it's amazing that she she made it. Well, and this is what they... This is what they called it at the time. They actually postponed that tour for a while, saying that she had walking pneumonia. Which, I mean, yeah. maybe she did, but there were a lot of things going on. I, if, you, if you've ever seen the set list from that tour... Again, I'm sorry, we're talking about Fleetwood Mac and not Minute Work. But Secondhand News opens the show. The chain is number two. Don't Stop is number three, and Dreams is number four. That That's pretty damn good. Oh Well is number five, and then Rhiannon happens at number six. So wow. that that's, I mean, you know, they, they a lot of the good stuff is out at that point. So even though the new the, the new record is uh, leaves something to be desired, the set list yeah, is pretty so, tight. So now I'm going to want to go and listen to different 81, 82 tours of Fleetwood Mac. That's going to happen, I guess. <laughs> I, I like that when we record these things, I know that you stay up way too late after we uh, have our conversations. And, and then what happens is I go to bed and I wake up to a bunch of text messages that are like video links to amazing random things like, you know, footage of the Mirage tour. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes I feel really bad. I like, I'll, I'll like send something. I'll be like, I, I sent Brian the 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 link uh, so he could see the look from when we were on the show last week or a couple of episodes ago about the the national anthem of Vince Neil from Motley Crue trying to sing the national anthem. And <laughs> you I was can like, always this is hilarious. Send you and can always send them. And I always and I'm and I should know by now that like I don't get responses. Like Brian doesn't respond, so I, I'm like I should know that like the phone's off or at some like at some point. Because I, I'm just, I I'm respond over, to you normally. I just may not right. respond to you post show late at night. Yeah, that's okay, right. Okay, okay. I just right. want to be clear about that. I, yeah. Murdoch and I have a great textual relationship. Yeah, you, you, uh, you like get go to bed, and I go upstairs and like plug in like a an amp, like an amp and a guitar and headphones and uh and 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 hang out. That's what I do. So, so by August, Who Can It Be Now is getting played in the U.S., and it goes number one in October. And while Who Can It Be Now was still a top ten in the U.S., it's down under that's finally released in the market, and it enters the U.S. charts at number 79, and 10 weeks later, it goes to number one. And by January of 83, Minute Work had the top album and top single in both the U.S. and the U.K., never been done before by an Australian act. So this wow. is to your point about how all of a sudden they just took over in the early 80s. And it's worth pointing out the irony of Down Under being the most enduring legacy of this band in America. Because to quote Colin Hay, this song is actually about the overdevelopment and Americanization of Australia. Quote, it was a song about the loss of spirit in that country. It's really about the plundering of the country by greedy people. Now, what happens to Minute Work after this? You can sort of say it's like the same thing that happens to every band when they get super successful. A bunch of tensions boil over, and by 84, the band sort of like splits in half. And then they bring in session musicians to fill in the gaps. And by 86, they're basically done. Colin Hay starts doing solo stuff, and then 10 years later, there's a partial reunion. Uh, it's really just Colin Hay and our boy Greg Ham, the flute-playing music student. 
different lineups exist for a while uh, for mostly European tours, and then by O2, the band is like completely done so again. So, there you have it. We did a very quick tutorial on Minute Work. Remember, this episode is brought to you in part by HelloFresh. If you're stuck in a dinner rut, you can get out of it with a little help from HelloFresh. It shows up at your door. It's pre-measured. It's mouth-watering. It's seasonal. All those trips to the grocery store can be ixnayed. And uh, now you can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy and fun and fast. 30 minutes. And you can get uh, dinner on the table. And like I said, the professional chefs and the nutritional experts, like they don't agree on a lot. They agree on this. So you can go to the link in our show notes now and get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. Back to the show. Let's leave those guys for a moment and turn our attention to somewhere you probably wouldn't anticipate. How are we going to, are we going to talk about Bobby Brown? Bobby Brown? King of R&B, Bobby Brown? We're not going to talk about Bobby Brown, but right. do you know what a kookaburro is? A kookaburro. No, and you sent me a text about it in all caps, and then I didn't Google it because I didn't want to ruin this. And I thought we were going to doing an episode about it, whatever it is. We we kind of are. We kind of are. Kookaburras okay. are terrestrial tree kingfishers. They're birds. Okay, so wait, they're birds. They're native to Australia. And they're typically about a foot to a foot and a half long, and they get their name for the noise they make. Interesting fact about this bird. Actually, very pop-culturally important. And this is partly because the noise they make is sort of freaky. It sounds like a human laugh. This is what a kookaburra sounds like. We I like all... it when they talk. I like it when they talk. It is so crazy. But this is that's pretty creepy. Oh my! <laughs> we we've all known someone, or known someone who was married to someone who had that laugh. Like you know what I mean? Like we've all been at a party and been like, "Oh my god, what is happening over in that corner?" Can you imagine being near a zoo and you work at the zoo and how many times during the day you see like a bunch of really stoned teenagers come by to go see that bird? <laughs> okay, so because it's so distinctive. Look, look at these guys. It gets used for all sorts of stuff in filmmaking and television productions. All right. And they use it on a bunch of Disney theme park rides and they use it. This is oh, this is true. They use it very um, like. I wouldn't say not not responsibly, but like they don't use it geographically correctly. Like because it's so distinctive and because people just go like, ooh, jungle or whatever, like when you hear that mixed in with a bunch of, you know, ethereal noises, they just use it for like the rides that are in every country with a jungle, even though it's really only in a couple of countries like Guinea and Australia. So there you go. That's all you're going to get about animal science today. Uh, so here here's the other thing, though. It's also in several video games, including Battletoads. This is, <laughs> I don't remember where this sound effect was in Battletoads. It's in World of Warcraft. Here's movies that it's in. Wizard of Oz from 1939. Treasure of Sierra Madre, 1948. Swiss Family Robinson, 1960. The 1962 version of Cape Fear. And The Lost World Jurassic Park. It can even be heard at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark in the jungle scene. 
So wow, Kookaburra, you may not know the name. You definitely know the sound. For our purposes, we want to go all the way back, way back before those movies. We want to go to 1932 for one of the earliest pop cultural incorporations of the Kookaburra. And of this show, for sure, it, maybe. Uh, Yeah, how early have we... I don't know, we haven't gone a lot earlier than 1932. So, yeah, it all starts with a teacher. They all, all most good stories do. Her name, Marion Librarian. No, I'm kidding. And that's Marion a, Barry. Mar- <laughs> the, cocaine, the cocaine mayor of D.C. Okay. Marion yeah. Sinclair, born in 1896, spent most of her life professionally as a teacher and a welfare worker, a public servant. But... She was always writing poems and composing music, and I assume she sounded like this, which is stereotypical in a weird way, and I don't know if that's good or bad. In 1920... I, I don't either, man. I don't know what's happening. 1920, Turak College. Actually a high school. Because it's weird. Some countries call their high schools colleges, and I get super confused when I read, like, Ireland does that, I think. Anyway, thanks, Sally Rooney. In Australia... Uh, this school recruits her to teach music and drama, and she has a long career there, during which, in 1934, she enters a songwriting contest that was looking for a traditional Australian round. Do you know what a round is? Yeah. Um, Explain no, no. it. I was, try- I was trying to think of, like, a a, a song so I could give you the... My- Michael Roy Bodeshaw. Yeah, that's yeah. The, the, those, those classic ones. I was trying to think of one that's in popular culture that people don't think about. You don't think Michael wrote, wrote your boat ashore is in popular culture? What's wrong with you, man? No, man. I think that's you know. <laughs> she'll be coming around the mountain when she. There you come, go. That's around. That's around. Yeah, that's right. Is it? I uh, probably. It, so <laughs> here we go. I know <laughs> rounds. So. I know rounds from church, man. Church music. Not right. the not the last time we're going to talk, talk about church music today, but right, right. You, you right. do learn when you get indoctrinated into church music. You learn some of these older traditions that have faded away. Where if you were born in the eighties or seventies, you didn't necessarily just would you wouldn't have like caught them through pop culture. You would catch them through some sort of traditional practice. And so church is where a lot of people caught them. So anyway, they they I guess in thirty two it was the hot thing. You drank and then you like made a round. Anyway, she makes the she enters the songwriting contest traditional Australian round, and she writes this tune. And she writes a tune about a bird that is native to her home in Australia. She writes a song called Kookaburra Sits in an Old Gum Tree. That was the recorded title. Does this ring a bell at all? No, are we going to get to hear it? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but okay, I'm super excited. I, th- right, I, this think, is, I think you'll this... know it. I think you'll know it. It's one of those things where you don't know that title, but you'll sort of feel it and recognize it, I think. Okay, it wins this contest. It's printed in a leaflet entitled Three Rounds by Marion Sinclair, and it was sung late that year at the first Pan Pacific Jamboree, which I'm sure was awesome. Can I... Oh, at the, <laughs> can, I can I summarize real quick? So... She basically won like the uh, American Idol <laughs> Down Under contest in ni- 1932. 1932. Right? I, I think I think that's fair. I, she so, yeah right. But just I wanted to put in perspective for people that are like, what's going on with the Jubilee? So there you go. There, so there was like she became she blew up very fast. How's that? She she blew up sort of yes. She has like the song blows up. There are actual people from across the world at this thing and they hear it and they like it and they take it with them and it achieves worldwide popularity and gets translated in a bunch of languages 
And like I said, I think you've probably heard it. It just gets stuck into that wider canon of kids' music with things like Pop Goes the Weasel and he's got the whole world in his hands, right? So yeah. this is Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree. Kookaburra sits on the old gum tree. Merry, merry king of the bush is he. Laugh, Kookaburra, laugh, Kookaburra. gay your life must be. Does that ring a bell at all? You... No, it's no? totally new. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Kookaburra sits in old gum tree. And of course, it's a round, so it just repeats over and over. So there's... That's very funny. I was like, Brian, you're cutting off the... Oh, it's just the same it's thing. It's just the same thing over and over. So she gets a little bit of money uh, for reproductions of this, but she never like makes a ton of cash and is never really sort of successful even as a poet or a composer. She has output. None of it really takes off. She's a public servant her whole life. She dies in 88. And here's where you need to tune back in if you've just totally tuned off because we've been listening to Kookaburra sits in an old gum tree. And you're like, why why have you been talking about all these random things in Australia and Triple J? And ah, okay. So before her death in 87, she gives the copyright and the ownership of her private records to the Libraries Board of South Australia, which is thoughtful, right? So she's written this thing, and this is the one big thing she, she does, right, that has notoriety. She writes this one children's song. And so she gives all her stuff and her journals or whatever, I'm sure. And she says, hey, you know, this goes to the libraries. Now, I'm a little unclear as to why what happens next happens. I don't know if there's just like jerks at the Australian Libraries Commission or if something legally happened. I don't know. But the South Australian public trustee that handles her estate decides to sell the copyright. And they sell the rights to Kookaburra Sits in an Old Gum Tree that has been popular to preschool students across the world, to Larrikin Music Publishing. And I believe there's $10,000 involved. I I don't know if it goes to the library's board to clear their claim of ownership, or if there's some sort of payment that goes to them in addition to clear their rights. But anyway, it goes to Larrikin Music Publishing in the end of the 80s, or actually maybe very early 90s. She dies in 88. So at this point, you're like, why are we talking about Australian kids' music? And how does this relate to minute work? And where do these paths wow. converge? Weirdly, they do converge, and they converge on a TV quiz show. Have you ever heard of Spicks and Specs? This is that's a new that's a new one to me. I okay, don't know. Okay, this is a thing where if you and I were Australian, mate, we would probably be big Spicks and Specs fans because it is an Australian music themed comedy television quiz show. So we basically said all of my favorite things: quiz show, okay. comedy, music. It aired yeah. from 05 to 11, 2005 to 2011. It's rebooted in 14, and I don't think it does well. And then it just got rebooted again in 2021. It's about to launch, oh. I think, with, with its original hosts from 2005. And what's what's the name again, so we all know the name Spix of it? Spix and Specs. I'm sure you can find clips okay. on the tube. Okay. okay. All right. So now we're in 2007. Do you remember I told you 2002 Minute Work is Kablooey again? And this yeah. is right around the time where Scrubs starts to take off and Zach Braff is probably reinvigorating Colin Hay a little bit, so things are okay. And one night on this show, a question pops up, specifically about Down Under. And this is the question. Which Australian nursery rhyme is the flute pot in Down Under based on? Now, oh, let me, let me play you the isolated audio. Dude, I am isolated track 
super fan ready for this. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, all right. I can listen to Mary Clayton sing Gimme Shelter over and over again by herself. This is a recording of just the flute and the synthesizer from Down Under. In the synth? All right. Yep. Sort of indisputable. Like, he clearly riffs on Kookaburra Sits on the Old Gum Tree. It's right there. But keep in mind, this song has been out for 27 years at the time of this quiz show. Or 20, well, he's written in the late 70s and he gets popular in 83, so 24 years. And and this quiz show, whoever's right, some, some young punk writing questions on this quiz show, probably a guy very much like me or you. This sounds like something we would come up with, right? Right? Especially in our 20s, where they'd be like, here, write some interesting trivia for the radio morning show. And we'd be like, ew, let's talk about the Australian folk song that is incorporated inside Down Under. It's like Colin Hay doesn't even realize that's happened. Uh, So this literally is, is how this goes down. Imagine the guys at Larrikin Music get a phone call. And they launch a lawsuit in 2009, nearly 30 years after this song's a massive hit. So let's talk about that for a second. The fear that you can create something, be very successful, and decades, decades later, almost three decades later, someone can show up on your doorstep and allege that you have ripped them off, even though that person didn't have any rights to the composition at the time when it was released and made profitable. Gosh, that's so weird to think about. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But that's what happens. And there are years of legal battles. Larrikin asks for something crazy, like 60% of the song. (laughs) They end up getting 5% going forward and back to 2002. So this is, I think by the time it settles, it's 2012. So they go, they get 10 years backwards, 5%, and then everything going forward, or 5% going forward. It ends up being like $100,000 that they get paid, have to pay. But Colin Hay spends... Remember when I said that these patent trolls just get bought off? They'll say like, oh, we'll make this go away for a licensing fee where you pay us X amount of money for a certain amount of time. And people just do it. And it's because Colin Hay fought this in court $4 million in court costs. Wow. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine deciding to take the step that you know you're you're just gonna you're gonna just spend all of it pour, pour spend, money down the toilet and, and yeah. then and and bar and then probably borrow money for the legal cost and, and there's major collateral damage okay so besides the money Greg Greg Ham who played the flu part he's like really upset about this I mean he feels like this has ruined his reputation I listen he was only one, he was one of three flute players in rock and roll <laughs> yeah. and now you didn't even know you didn't even know he was on the song. You just oh thought of Jethro Tull when I said flute and music, I, right? I I can't believe that I've listened to and and felt more connected to Minute Work than either one of those two bands, and I never even put it together that the the hook that I'm listening to is a flute. And, and I listen, just, it's 
this is it what just, this is what broke Greg Ham's heart. You broke Greg Ham's heart. He ends up dying of a heart attack in April of 2012 as this thing come, comes to a close. Colin is on record as saying, quote, the case was horrible in every way possible. So how did this happen? Colin's talked publicly about it quite a bit. We'll actually hear him talk about it in a little bit. We never actually argued the point that there were, in fact, two bars of kookaburra in the song Down Under, says Colin. But how that happened is interesting because Greg never knew what that melody was. People find that odd, but it's the truth. We were a jam band for a couple of years, and by the time you go into the studio and that melody appears in Down Under, it's just kind of subsumed within the framework. And that makes total sense to me. Like, as a guy who's riffed around and played with bands, you're you're messing around, you figure out a song, you find this recognizable nursery rhyme melody that you incorporate, and it becomes like a bit of an homage, and then you sort of forget about it. Plus, one thing we haven't talked about, Mark, and I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show, but it's a great time to talk about it. Okay. Again, nerd alert, is public domain. Uh, you, you understand yeah. public domain? Yeah, it's if... It's if the the copyright is it's out of date, yeah, so that yeah. everyone has free use of it. Yeah, it's, I, it's I like weirdly remember learning use. about this also at a very young age through church, uh, the hymn book. Oh yeah, most of those songs yeah, you're singing on Sunday morning. They have two words listed under the title, right? It's like, and I, and oh, I knew you could make copies of that. Yeah. and there's other stuff you yep. couldn't make copies yeah. of other music. Uh huh. Yeah, I think. My first, my first experience with understanding, uh, seeing "I'll Fly Away." Uh huh. Dude, exactly. Yeah. So the public domain consists of all the creative work to which no ex- exclusive intellectual property rights apply. Now, there may not not be any of those rights because of a few things. They may have expired. They may have been forfeited. They may have been expressly waived, or they may be inapplicable. Now, examples: the works of William Shakespeare, the works of Ludwig van Beethoven. The works of Leonardo da Vinci, they're all public domain right now by virtue of either they were created before copyright existed or by the fact that their copyright term has expired. They can all also vary by country, but in the United States, items excluded from copyright include, this is so interesting, the formula of Newtonian physics can't be copyrighted, and cooking recipes, which is interesting. And I'd never thought about it, but it's also why there's blog culture around when I want to get a freaking recipe for a gazpacho, I have to read about a guy's trip to the apple orchard and the four women he banged in college. Like, it, it's unbelievable, the, the crap that you have to read to find a stupid recipe. Maybe they should I've copyright got, them. I've got a great idea, and I don't care that I'm telling all everybody listening. So one, someone needs to get on this idea, because everybody can be a publisher on the internet. Start a website that's a, a you know a food blog that has recipes. No stories. But, <laughs> but at the beginning, there the, if you do tell stories, you know the story is like uh, the first time I heard "Foreigner as Cold as Ice." <laughs> yes! I was at my my middle school's uh, dance. Uh, and, are, are uh, you are you calling for a rock and roll bedtime stories recipe book? Because I'm into this idea, man. If there's one thing I like to do next to podcasting, it's cooking. I, we could combine these things very quickly. Oh, that's true. We could, and we yeah. I feel like we need to cut this out of the show. <laughs> <laughs> All computer software created before 1974 also public domain. 
Very interesting. I remember at one point a few years back, I realized that people were crowdsourcing audiobook and Kindle versions of older novels. Like you could just go into the Kindle store or on uh, like on the Apple podcasting app and you could just find people reading. So it's like I just turned on this mic and just read you a Charles Dickens book or whatever because it's public domain. So that's sort of interesting. I, I bring this up because a song you learned in your childhood is often not thought of as having a copyright. Like this goes back to my earlier example of Pop Goes the Weasel. I actually looked this up for this example, and I did find out that Pop Goes the Weasel is in the public domain because it is a, quote, recording based on a folkloric or traditional music composition that has fallen out of copyright, and any recording rights to this version have expired. So, if the flute riff that briefly appears in Down Under was... uh, This whole episode never would have happened. It would have been fine because that's public domain. And in the wake of this legal ruling, this actually gets brought up, right? The idea that the guys in Men at Work probably thought this was public domain or this song should totally be public domain. And it started by, this is a fun twist in this story, it gets brought up by the guy who was the founder of Lyrican Music. Now, Lyrican Music is the group that sued Men at Work. But here's the background you need. Lyrican Music was actually started by a dude named Warren Fahey. And he had all these different efforts in the 60s and 70s that were meant to maintain Australian folklore and folk music. And as a part of this, in 1969, he started this famous like kind of folk collective group called the Lyricans. But he'd sold Lyrican Music in 1988 Incidentally, right around the same time as our girl Marion kicked the bucket. And then it gets sold again in the 90s. Now remember, this is 07 when this thing happens. So now, this guy who has staked his career on being a defender and treasuring American or uh, Australian folklore is caught up by association with this obviously frivolous lawsuit with a song that should be public domain. And so... He's not happy about it, and he actually issues a press release on his personal website. It's in the show notes, still on the internet, in its original form, where he actually publicly calls for Larrikin Music to gift Kookaburra to the Australian people and make it public domain. Remember I said in the definition that one way you can be public domain is that somebody waives the rights. Yeah. His argument is basically this. Dudes, everybody already thought this was public domain. Wow. Now, he mentions in his statement what is probably the most famous case in music to mirror this sort of predatory copywriting. You want to take a guess? Like, just think about, if you think about random songs that should be public domain that are not, what song comes to mind? I'll give you a clue. You look like a monkey and you smell like one, too. Happy birthday. That's not in the public domain. But so think about this. It's a it's a good comparison because it was written under similar circumstances. This is actually in Warren Fahey's statement. Uh, and he and he says it was centered on the oral tradition before being taken up by a commercial publisher. Now, have you ever been to a steakhouse on someone's birthday? Have we never gone out for my birthday? And you tell the guy, "Hey, it's Brian's birthday. Can you bring him a free slice of cake?" And then they come out and they sing some ridiculous made up happy birthday song. That's right. That's why. 
Oh my gosh. It's not because Outback Steakhouse wants their own version of the birthday song. That's that's not high. They just want your money. Right? They just want to capitalize on Australia in a totally different way. <laughs> so here's the story on uh, on this. It actually has a Louisville connection. So it was composed. Happy birthday was composed by two American kindergarten teachers in 1893 in Louisville, Kentucky. As good morning to all, the original composers never claimed copyright or publishing. Even when it was published as sheet music in 1912, it was never claimed by the composer or the publisher. In 1935, a publisher named Summy Music published an arrangement, changed the title to Happy Birthday to You, and credited two new composers. By the time the song had really entered public domain, uh, or, or it would have, it would have entered public domain. In 1990, Warner Chapel Music purchased Summy Music for $15 million and has tried unsuccessfully to enforce its publishing right over and over again. And several law professors in the U.S. have already defended the song as public domain and said any publishing claim is unenforceable. The above reinforces the Kookaburra claim of public domain in Australia. Copyright is a strange beast, and public domain is even stranger. Australian musicians are rightfully angry about this decision. I'm, I'm reading this guy's piece again. Because the creation of music is always influenced to some degree by other music. This ruling is seen as a threat to musical creativity and to some extent the Australian spirit of lyricanism. Interesting side note about happy birthday. In 2016, in 2016, five years ago, the courts finally officially declared it public domain. So I always thought it was how weird. It's we so we should never have to hear the Outback Steakhouse birthday song again, in theory. Though I think it's probably part of the part of the manual when you start it out back now. Uh, okay, hey Brian. I, Brian, I got a quick left turn. It's awesome though. So I'm a kid. I'm on some awful redneck, terrible Florida vacation. And we're at some hibachi place and they come out to sing happy birthday. And one of my dad's friends came and he was drunk as piss. <laughs> and he was making fun of them singing. Ooh. And one of them, one of them reached down with the spatula and threw a shrimp and hit it <laughs> right on his, like in his mouth, on his tongue, on his face. Like it was a perfect shot. And as a kid, I was like, man, that is amazing. <laughs> Happy, like this is the best. Birthday. That is like the best you can be at your job. Like, <laughs> there is no better way. Okay, I can't wait to go someplace and be like, "No, you're gonna sing Happy Birthday." I don't sing the I don't real wanna, one. Yeah, I don't want to hear the Cracker Barrel Pancake Happy Days song. <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know. They don't sing shit for you, Cracker Barrel. So, so speaking speaking of that, just because you said happy days, uh, another quick diversion. We need to talk about this maybe on a bonus episode because we could talk about it for a while. I went to the Pinball Museum in Asheville last week, and it was yeah. unbelievable. Have you ever been there? Okay. No, and, and, and I need to go because, man, I love pinball. Oh, dude, and... it's it's badass. But they have all these vintage pinball machines, and you can play most of them. But one of them they have, and in the in the little, they, they literally don't even have, like, plaques. They have, like, handwritten notes on, on each of them where somebody's gone through and said, this one 
was this company made it in this year. And so there's one from the 70s, early 70s, and it's, it is clearly a ripoff of Fonzie uh, from Happy Days. Happy Days, yeah. And it looks like him. It looks like Henry Winkler. It looks like other characters from Happy Days, but they call it something just slightly different. <laughs> and so even in the notes that they left on this pinball machine, they were like, as you can see, there was clearly a copyright issue here. But this sort of stuff happens across the board. That's why, you know, it's people... That's that's a, an example of somebody playing the other side of this, right? Where they're clearly ripping something off and 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 cashing in on. I mean, if you saw this thing, you'd be like, "Cool, Henry Winkler's likeness is on this uh, pinball machine," and it's actually not supposed to be Henry Winkler. Uh, the other place besides the hymnal I mentioned, where I think um, we're dealing with public domain a lot, and we may not think about it, is Christmas songs. CD Baby actually has a forum walking musicians through which Christmas songs they cannot do cover versions of without paying for. Well, good for CD Baby. I know that. I mean, nice CD, sure. Dude, CD Baby for the win. If you don't know what CD Baby is right now and you're listening to this, you are not me and Mark because we definitely know what CD Baby is. Uh, so I just grabbed a few. The list is super long, right? None of these that I'm about to tell you are in the public domain. None these of these. Are all, these are all ones that that somebody, the hammer is going to put the hammer on you for. Okay. Somebody has a copyright to All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Do you hear what I hear? Mm-hmm. Mm. Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, the Christmas song? Yeah. yeah. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? Frosty the Snowman? Interesting. Here Comes Santa Claus? Holly Jolly Christmas? <laughs> Because that, that's a Burl Ives tune, I think. He made Burl Ives, man. Oh, man, my grandfather hated Burl Ives. Really? Be, that, that's, be, that's a weird mountain. Why, why do yeah. you hate Burl Ives? We'd be watching that that the 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 Santa Claus or the Frost is it the Frosty thing? Yeah, I know. It's Fr- I think it's Frosty that he's on. I think it's Frosty. And I remember I was a kid, so I I couldn't have been. I was under ten, uh, and because he died when I was ten, and I remember he was like. A goddamn burlap son of a bitch. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, it stuck with me because he said all the words, are, like all the curse words. Are we going to have to do an episode about Burlap so we can understand why your uncle hated him so much? Because now I'm just curious. Was he like yeah. a communist? Was he, you know, fighting on the wrong side of the war? Like, I need to know what was happening with Burl. I don't it's know. It's crazy. Man. Okay. Yeah. Let's wrap this up. It's a long and complicated story and it doesn't have a happy ending. The flute player is dead, and this 5% decision still hangs over the head of Colin Hay. The other guys who are still around, I'm sure, are dealing with it, too. So here's where we're going to end. I got a clip from back in 2012, right after this thing settled. It's Colin on stage with his acoustic guitar, and he's explaining the situation and what it means for the future of the band. And he does a nice little uh, walkthrough of the situation here. And, and you can watch the whole clip. There's like 10 minutes of this in, in the show notes where he talks this through and then he plays down under. But we'll just, we'll hear his explanation here. Uh, there was a melody uh, 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 before, before Man of existed when the song was written. Yeah. Uh, there was a melody at the start. I used to go this. So when we recorded the song, and Greg put the flute like a start, it went like this.
fun and fuss has been about for the last three years. <laughs> anyway, the upshot of it for me is, of course, I'll be on tour for a fucking long time. <laughs> If you want to get involved in the show, all you have to do is send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Check out everything we got going on at we are the story guys.com. And, um, wow. Murdoch, what do we need to keep doing until next time? Keep eating Vegemite sandwiches and keep telling stories. Rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright boy have we got stories productions. All rights reserved.